This is a Rooster Teeth production. There is an area of the Atlantic Ocean in which multiple ships and aircrafts have mysteriously disappeared over the years, oftentimes vanishing into thin air without a trace. To this day, the cause of those disappearances remains up for debate. Today, we're going to discuss the famous Bermuda Triangle. This is Red Web. Welcome back to another Mystery Monday. I'm Trevor Collins, and with me is Alfredo Diaz. Dude, I am excited about this one. This is one of my old school favorites. Love this one since I was a kid. The Bermuda Triangle. Yes, finally, finally, finally. I mean, the Bermuda Triangle, like you said earlier, famous, right? Classic. Movies, books, TVs, all all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like People know about this strange area. With that being said, how do we still not know about this damn place? How do we still not know? The answers, what the questions linger. <laughs> Disappearances from all through time. Man, this goes back even farther than I knew. That's so insane. I'm, I'm yeah. looking forward to, because like, I only know about this place from like the Hollywood POV, right? Where it's just like, it's creepy. Yeah. Where it's creepy. It's crazy. This area in the ocean where if you fly over, depending what type of format you're you know, ingesting this uh, space in, warp you through time or Ooh. monsters or EMP, all your electronics or you get stranded or who knows? There's all these different made up like types of different forms of how this area does what it does, which is just be this giant mystery. Right. Well, now I'm furiously scribbling down uh, the theory of a kaiju living here. But you're right. I mean, (laughs) Hollywood is really taking it to the next level on what's going on here. And I mean, it makes sense. We're going to get into the theories later on, but there's a lot of different angles that people come at this with to try to figure out why is this particular place so riddled with disappearances and anomalies and strange sightings? Because it goes back way, way, way back into history and it continues all the way up to today. But man, the Bermuda Triangle has fascinated me deeply. It's probably one of the first mysteries that got me on the track that led to this podcast. And I can remember back as far as like third grade going like, when I'm an adult, I'm going to take a boat. I'm going to go right out there. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. (laughs) Would you still do that? I think so. I mean, maybe. I don't know. I'm not chasing death here. And I also know that if it is a more natural cause, whatever is going on here, truly, whatever you want to believe, people have died and people have disappeared. That's just a fact. And they're experienced individuals, whether they're pilots or captains or what have you. So it doesn't take a talented individual to make it through here. Anyone can go disappearing. So now I'm kind of like, watch from afar. What am I really (laughs) going to learn by crashing into the sea? But Let's dive in. Let's talk. So this is a big topic. I recognize this. And this might be a primo topic to come back to with updated incidents and stories and narratives. But what we're going to do is we're going to go through an overview of this area and we'll go through a couple of popular incidents that happened in this area from throughout time. And then we're going to wrap up, as always, with the theories that they attempt to solve what is going on with these incidents. But again, there are so many incidents, famous ones or otherwise, from throughout time that I would love to discuss, but we would truly be here all day uh, if we hit every single one. So we're going to hit a handful. Maybe we'll come back, like I said, and go through some other incidents. But let's talk about the Bermuda Triangle. Yes, let's do it. Yes. Also known as the Devil's Triangle, if that helps set the tone any better, 
It uh, covers about 500,000 square miles of ocean, or 1.3 million square kilometers, somewhere just off the coast of Florida. Now, I've seen different triangles drawn to represent the Bermuda Triangle, but the classic location is a line or a triangle drawn between Miami, the island of Bermuda, straight down to Puerto Rico, and back over to Miami. And that is the quintessential triangle that people refer to. Oh, I didn't realize it was so close. Yeah. It's right there. Now, in this area, the first known reported incident goes all the way back to Christopher Columbus in October of 1492, sailing through this area on the way to the New World. Now, going through this area, he did in fact report that there was a, quote, great flame of fire that crashed into the sea one night. Now, this potentially could have just been a meteor, right? Oh, true. But what makes it stranger is that a few weeks later, strange lights kept appearing on the horizon, or at least at a distance over the next couple weeks. So this is following a long time scale here. If it is a meteor shower, it's not gonna continue to rain down in that specific spot over the course of weeks. Our planet is moving. So I don't know. It's interesting though. I, I had no idea that our, our boy over here, CC, had some sightings. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the first questions I have uh, are, you know, where how far back does this go and how recent is this? And I'm sure you'll mm -hmm. we'll find out during this episode, but that's a while ago. Yeah. And then you're saying like, you know, fire across the water. I'm like, oh, that's it sounds like some mythical stuff. And then, yeah, no, a meteor adds up. But then again, yeah, it's not going to rain and shower for a whole week. That's so... Or for weeks. I'm interested in hearing the other incidents and to see if there's anything that kind of like adds up together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep a mind on that for sure, because the incidents range from boats to planes to sightings to activities of other unworldly sorts. It truly is an area of a lot of different claims. But one of the quintessential claims was also experienced by Christopher Columbus when heading through this area, and that was that the compass readings that he was getting were very erratic. This is very common even today, uh, but certainly in the mid-1900s with the advent of airplanes and motors and basically more traveling and more transportation happening in this area with uh, rudimentary instruments. But I always hear stories about compasses going haywire in this area. And it's very interesting to hear that this goes back all the way to 1492. I had no idea. Do we, do we think... I mean, I'm very interested to see, like, if anywhere during this episode we think that the, or scientists think it's maybe, like, the way the tectonic plates are aligned there mm. or, or you know what I mean? Any type of, like, electromagnetic field that they've been able to pinpoint or something like that. Yeah, that's a good question because a lot of things can interfere with the magnetic field, you know? It's, it's all about the molten core and the churning of the inside of the planet, and that's what creates the magnetic field. Now... Within that, something that's worth knowing is that there's a geographical north, which is the north that we look at on maps, right? It points up. And then you have the magnetic north, which is what compasses point to. Now, fortunately, when we look at a map and a compass, most of the world is in a position where they generally line up, that the margin of error is quite small, the difference between geographic north and magnetic north. Right. Over time, this obviously changes. Magnetic North moves. 
Uh, for example, right now, if you were in Alaska, perhaps Siberia, you're so far north and you're also kind of at a position on the planet where there is quite a wide angle of difference between where your compass is pointing and where your map true north would be pointing. Going back to 1492, during this time, the magnetic north has been traced back in time by people much smarter than I that know how to do that. And right. around this time, there was a sliver of the Bermuda Triangle where it was one of the few, if not one of the only places on Earth, right? There's a line around the planet that would have these two points, magnetic north and true north, lined up. Oh. And some start to go, well, maybe because of that, there was a magnetic anomaly that caused the compass to go haywire. Oh. We'll dive a little bit more into that. It's a popular discussion, and we'll get into it in the theories. I'm not sure a, <laughs> a compass would just know where geographic north is and would get confused. Yeah. But it would know that if there's something in the air, right, something in the magnetic field that's running interference, it would cause the compass to go crazy. But we'll do our best to kind of dive into that later. So interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But long story short here about the triangle, it's a place where many unexplained occurrences have been reported from as far back, like I mentioned, as 1492, all the way up to today with a cluster. I'm talking a lot of incidents happening in the mid 19th century. And that could be from instrumentation, like I was indicating, could be from new technologies traveling through this area. It could be a lot of reasons, but again, we'll dive into it. So let's start with the incidents. We've got the USS Cyclops, the biggest ship in the US Navy that came through this area and vanished without a trace. It departed on February 25th of 1918, and it was on a voyage between the West Indies to Baltimore. This ship was nearly 550 feet long and had 306 people on it, and the Cyclops had been sailing successfully since 1910. It traveled quite a range, right? It went between the Baltic Sea to the Caribbean to Mexico, down to Brazil. It went to a lot of different places, and it wasn't until this particular incident that it just disappeared without a trace. The ship primarily moved coal around the world, but also helped refugees, just for some background here on the USS Cyclops. Now in 1917, when America entered World War I, the ship became a key naval asset. It was transporting troops and coal between, obviously, the, uh, the, the Americas and the front. In March of 1918, the ship was actually given new cargo. It had 11,000 tons of dense manganese ore, which is something that is used in steel making. And when the ship left Brazil on February 25th of 1918, it was loaded to the brim with this brittle metal. So there's something to think about there. It has this very heavy load. Yeah, I was about to say. It's paramagnetic. So it's mostly uh, non-magnetic, but it has a very weak attraction to magnets. But anyway, that's the, the cargo that has got a lot of weight to it. Now it's heading from Barbados to resupply for the long journey all the way up to Baltimore. Now, a few days later on March 4th of 1918, which was about a week after departing, the last known message from the ship simply said, weather fair, all well. Ultimately, during this nine day journey, the ship disappeared without a trace, without as much as an SOS. No one from the ship would ever be heard from or seen again. How deep is the Bermuda Triangle? In the ocean? I mean, it's, it's a big chunk of the ocean, but like, oh man, do we know what like the deepest part of it is? Because I don't know if it's such a valuable ship and that's accomplished so much. To what extent do we explore this space, you know? That's a good question. Now, I know I've watched some docs on the thing, right? And 
I know they scrub the bottom of the ocean. They've looked for this, actually this upcoming incident that we're about to talk about, but they've looked for the disappearing flights and ships and uh, individuals, right? They've looked for this before and combing the ocean floor is a very laborious effort. And it's also like finding a needle in a haystack. Yeah. But you'd think that maybe you'd be able to... Something after all these years. Ah, man, I don't know. 11,000 tons of manganese sank to the bottom of the floor. It'd be interesting to see uh, how would you how would you find that? Yeah, I mean the ocean is is several miles deep. In this particular spot, I'm not exactly sure, but to get down there is already a technical feat and then to scrub through and you yeah. know basically go through the whole bottom surface of this area. It's like finding the Titanic, right? A ship that we knew the path of, but we only roughly knew where it uh, would have gone down. And eventually, right, it was found but it's a very complicated effort for sure. Yeah, I mean, I do like the fact that, you know, there there has been attempts. Yeah, it's definitely, there's definitely studies that go on and, and parties that go down to the surface, or I should say down to the floor and look for things. But it's, you know, another complicating effort here is who's to say it went down on its like, I don't know what, what the boat equivalent of a flight path is, but yeah. who's to say it went down on its route? Maybe it went off course, maybe, anything else could happen. The ocean is huge, freaky, and it as is. it sinks, it could dive somewhere else. It's deep and dark. It's wild. But the fact that they were like, fair weather, all's good here. No SOS, nothing. They just disappeared. Not a trace is very spooky and will become a trend for a lot of these incidents that the weather is fair and that nobody knows where they went. And there's no evidence. So that was going to be my next question, right? Because if that is a trend, so, so what you're trying to um, tell me is that a lot of the different ships that disappeared from this place don't give out like an SOS or like a distress signal or anything like that? I don't know if the lack of an SOS necessarily is a pattern. I don't know deeply enough about enough of these incidents to make that claim. But I will say because some of them like this next one, they do have records of pre-incident confusion right and reaching out and saying something's wrong oh okay but i do know that disappearing without a trace is very common and with the weather being fair is also pretty common for a lot of these incidents interesting so a lot of claims of like good weather because i don't know i feel like it really starts to like ping my imagination in a certain direction when yeah when it's just like you know they couldn't get out a quick like SOS or distress signal because they're getting a message out. Mm -hmm. But it makes me feel like whatever is happening to these ships and planes or whatever is sudden. Right away, they're caught off mm -hmm. guard and cut off as opposed to like this slower incident that's going on. Right. It's not that something was hit. It's not that inclement weather rolled in unexpectedly. Right. You know, all of the classic things that would cause an accident that we, you know, as we understand them, nothing prevalent here. At least not right now. Let's dive into the next one and see what you think here. Yeah. Before you move on, I just wanted to answer your earlier question, Alfredo. The deepest point in the Bermuda Triangle also happens to be the deepest point in the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, damn. It's called the Milwaukee Depth. It's in the Puerto Rico Trench, and it reaches a depth of 27,493 feet. Ooh. Or 8,380 meters. Ooh. Wow. Okay, so Kaiju. Yep. Cthulhu, <laughs> we found your new home. <laughs> that is, I did not know that. Fantastic question, Alfredo. That Damn. is interesting. That is interesting. That's 
I mean, you've got to think too. It's not just like a big old hole that drops off. It probably descends maybe gradually at a lot of different points and stuff like that. Or, and you'll have cracks definitely that have that like just straight through drop off. Mm. But man, you're giving me that lassophobia feeling, if that's the word, right? Where uh, there's a fear of the deep ocean. Have you ever seen people swimming out in the ocean? And I'm just like, you have miles of emptiness below you and creatures that they master the sea. I know. They man. eat things. Even, I'm, yeah, mm. even things that you don't take your imagination out of it. You know, sharks are real. <laughs> you know, they're Dude. a thing, right? You got jellyfish, you got all kinds of different creatures and animals and sea serpents and stuff like that. They can just get at you. The speed with which a shark can be up on you is I'll never forget this video I saw where a shark came up from out of the depths like a blink of an eye. And the guy's lucky that he happened to have a harpoon gun to jab it and get it away. But yeah, thalassophobia, real thing. It's a whole subreddit about it. It's the fear of the ocean. If you ever uh, feel like giving yourself nightmares. So let's dive into the next incident. This might be the quintessential Bermuda story. I'm sure many people listening at home have heard of this in some way or another, but it is the Flight 19 mystery, the loss of Flight 19. But let's dive in there. So 2 p.m. In the afternoon, December 5th, 1945, five TBM Avenger torpedo bombers departed U.S. Navy Air Station in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and they're out for a routine navigational training flight. Lieutenant Charles C. Taylor was acting as the flight's leader, and Taylor was a seasoned naval aviator with some 2,500 flying hours under his belt and multiple World War II combat tours in the Pacific. So this guy knows what's up. Yeah, he might know <laughs> what he's doing. He might. Uh, also, it's just a cool point, too, where the people that are, I mean, I don't know if cool is the word, but like the people that are going into this, mm -hmm. a lot of them are also people that are experienced or large groups of people. It's not exactly. like this area has a bunch of solo people that randomly wander into it. It's like right. there's experienced human beings going into this area and running into issues. Right. This isn't I commandeered my papa's boat for the weekend <laughs> and went straight out to the ocean. My papa. Yeah, this is, uh, there's a pattern. I mean, obviously there's there's people with some less experience that have been caught up in this whole yeah, thing. But, definitely. But certainly, like, th you're right. This is a, is a really good note to take, which is some truly experienced individuals are out here getting caught up in messes that are confusing them. They're put into situations that they never experienced before, which one would consider after 2,500 hours of flying that it would be a challenge to put you in unfamiliar conditions, right? Mm -hmm. But the flight path is pretty simple. They were to fly east from Florida, conduct bombing runs at a place called Hens and Chickens Shoals. They would then turn north and proceed over Grand Bahama Island and then come back for the last leg of the flight, coming back to the NAS Fort Lauderdale. The weather was projected to be relatively normal except for a few scattered showers in the area. And on the first leg of the flight, everything went as planned. They dropped off practice bombs without incident. As the group began to turn north for the second leg of the journey, at approximately 3.45 p.m., Fort Lauderdale's flight tower received a message from Taylor, who reportedly sound confused and worried. Now, this is where I'm going to do a bit of role-playing, Fredo. So Okay, all right, hit me with it. Okay. Cannot see land. Uh, we seem to be off course. The tower responded with, what is your position? Following a few moments of silence, the tower personnel peered out into the clear day in the direction that the planes were supposed to be operating. There didn't seem to be any sign of them at that time. We cannot be sure where we are. Repeat, cannot see land. Contact was then lost for 10 minutes. And when it resumed, it was not the voice of the flight leader. It was someone else. We can't find West. Everything is wrong. We can't be sure of any direction. Everything looks strange. 
Tower personnel learned from intercepted transmissions that the flight leader had actually turned over his command to another pilot for unknown reasons. After 20 minutes of radio silence, the new leader's voice transmitted to the tower. His voice was trembling, bordering on hysteria. We can't tell where we are. Everything is... Can't make out anything. We think we may be about 225 miles northeast of base. For a few moments, the pilot rambled incoherently before uttering the last words ever heard from Flight 19. It looks like we're entering white water. We're completely lost. Tower personnel scrambled two PBM Mariner flying boats carrying rescue equipment. They were headed directly for the last known position of Flight 19, and 10 minutes into the rescue flight, they checked in with the tower. But shortly after, one of the rescue planes also disappeared. For five days, Coast Guard, Navy, and Naval Aviation personnel searched extensively in more than 250,000 square miles of the Atlantic and Gulf waters. Ultimately, nothing was found. No aviators, no wreckage, no life raft, not even an oil slick. 14 men were lost as a result of Flight 19's tragedy, and 13 more were lost from the PBM Mariner attempted rescue. So this... Flight 19 situation is extremely well known. Of course, we might be glossing over some details for those of you who are more familiar with this, but this is probably one of the spookiest stories and one of the quintessential stories that goes with the Bermuda Triangle. That was uh, that was well done. That was very immersive, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. The, the things that get me are just like... Yeah, hit me with it. The experienced pilot. Yeah. Like it's just giving up command. Mm -hmm. And then from there... There's some weirdness with the water. Yes, the chain of command changed without any real reasoning. Like you mentioned, they were saying that they looked like they were entering white water and that they felt completely lost, which for midday flying in clear weather, I mean, there's intermittent storms, so maybe they found a pocket storm, but man, I, I don't know. There's Again, we're not in the theories yet and we will get there, but there's a lot of theories that go into play here that you can end up in a death spin, right? Where you can't pull out of the spiral. Right. You can end up diving downward. You could end up losing the horizon. You could end up flying non-straight, basically, in any way askew and oh, not scary. feel that you're upside down or sideways or whatever. There's a lot of weird things that go on, especially- Yeah, with flying. Yeah, with early planes that could have positioned these, these men in a bad way, but outside of the attempted answers, what really spooks me out is just the fact that there's no evidence and they really combed for it. But at the time, there was no wreckage. I think like just the, the other fascinating thing too is that people were lost during the exploration. I'm assuming mm -hmm. just because it's just, it's dangerous to explore underwater that deep or you said they lost some people yeah they lost one of the flights now now i called them flying boats but the pbm mariner is a plane that lands on water that's exactly what it means by that it's not a boat that flies but yeah it's not a boat so they're not like searching for them on the surface but they're rather flying around and one of those planes went missing in the search that's that's a, oh man yeah it's just so intriguing, mm -hmm. right? Especially because like, all right, even if, you know, we've had a lot of episodes where like this happened or that happened, or it's like, ah, oh, man, it could have been this or it could have been that, or we don't, we don't quite believe it or buy into it. But I mean, it's not like this, these people ran away. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. oh, they have so many different types of transportation over so many years just disappear. 
Yeah. It's so crazy. You know, I, I know that a lot of the task force out there is intimately familiar with a lot of the mysteries we discuss. And I am intimately aware of the Flight 19 mystery and a lot of the details that we're glossing over. For those of you who are interested in more, I highly encourage you to read up more about it. There's more to the story with regards to theories and whatnot, like that they were lost, that they thought they were in a different location geographically, that they were angled in a certain direction because their compasses were going haywire. They thought they were flying a different direction. They could have flown out to sea and disappeared in a completely unsearched area. There are people that think that in searching for these crafts, people believe that we might have been able to find them now 44 years after this incident. There's a lot of other details and perhaps it's a mystery worth exploring in and of itself, but I just wanted to take a moment to recognize that there's a lot of details that we'll be kind of uh, smoothing over as we, you know, we're a more conversational level of, of mystery explorers, I suppose, or enthusiasts, right? But yeah, I mean, I just assume with a lot of things that you guys like, you know, that you and Christian bring to the table every episode that you could probably just go on for hours and days. Like, oh yeah, I'm sure there's so many different little nuances and pieces to shift through and, and interviews to listen to and papers to read about. Yeah, I always saw it as like, all right, we're gonna gloss over it, you know, maybe dig a little deep here and there. Um, but you know, it's more just, we're gonna have a conversation about this. And mm -hmm. if you're interested, there's so much more you can dive into. Right. And maybe, hey, maybe we will dive into this one. Uh, we have a sister podcast, as it were, in our network called Black Box Down, hosted by Gus Sarola and Chris Damaris. I just want to give them a quick plug, Freds. Oh, yeah. They, they go all into, uh, you know, aircraft disasters and unsolved aircraft disasters, all, basically true crime in the air. And they're a fantastic podcast. They're co-workers of ours. Maybe maybe they'll explore this mystery in depth someday if they haven't already. So uh, maybe give them a listen. But yeah, there's a lot more to this mystery. And uh, and maybe someday, you know, Fredo, maybe we'll do a docu-series and do like a hyper deep dive on, on one of these topics because man, there's some, some crazy mysteries out there that without really diving in, you're not fully getting it, you know? Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. We have some like chunky, really chunky meaty episodes. Yeah, Hulu, you know, hit us up. Netflix, you need a doc. <laughs> Task Force is out here. Yeah, <laughs> and I'll like, you know, I'll stay in the car though. You, st you stay in the car. I'll stay, you stay in the, in the car. car, in the lot, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, you stay in the car, in the garage, at the creepy place. I'm going to find, like, I'm going to find the Bermuda Triangle of land. I'm going to find that place with a parking lot straight in the middle. Anyway, let's talk about the next incident, though, here in the Bermuda Triangle. November 3rd of 1978. Irving Rivers was a pilot for the Eastern Caribbean Airways, and Rivers was flying his Piper Navajo alone from St. Croix to St. Thomas. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with the Caribbean, St. Croix is one of the U.S. Virgin Islands in the area, and St. Thomas is the gateway isle of the U.S. Virgin Islands, also in the Caribbean. Now, during this incident, the skies were clear and the temperatures were forecasted to be warm. So again, with this fair weather, just like last time, except minus the potential for sporadic showers. I think um, that's a piece okay. of information that honestly is, I think I'm, I'm kind of taking for granted. You know what I mean? Yeah. The fact that we know that these vehicles, these pieces of transportation are reporting clear skies. And like you said, there are random storms and showers, etc. Sure, sure. But it's not like this place is constantly storming and right. people are going missing. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, hey, there are clear skies here and vanish. Yeah. It leaves 
like that shadow of doubt just not as appearing in my head not as not as big it's not too much of a focus for me yeah like it just removes any obvious culprits right yeah at least as far as like your gut check would be concerned but uh when flying again flying solo in his piper navajo Rivers is approaching the airway at St. Thomas and is in fact cleared to land. He's made contact with uh, the control tower. The control tower can actually see his plane, or at least the lights blinking in the distance, but then they vanish. The plane had disappeared from radar just one mile from the landing strip. At this point, an emergency search was quickly strung together, but the plane and its pilot were never found. Aviation Safety Network reports, quote, aircraft presumed to have crashed into the sea on final approach to St. Thomas, end quote. Now, the reason we wanted to outline this one is because it's a little bit more modern, right? It's in the late 70s. But what is interesting is that people had eyes on this plane. They could see the lights blinking in the distance and it disappeared only a mile away from the landing strip. So we knew that there was nothing crazy going on with the weather. We would have seen if there was an explosion in the distance. We would have quickly been able to get on site to figure out, is there any evidence of a crash or, a, or what have you? And the fact that nothing was found, no pilot, no plane, is what makes this so compelling. That's so wild, man. Yeah. And that it disappeared from radar. Blip. Off it went. Now, radar is not infallible. It's worth noting that. And if it did, in fact, crash, it probably would disappear from the radar because it becomes one with the ocean. But it doesn't make this one any less eerie. I, in fact, hadn't known about this one until Maite put these research notes together. Uh, she's just another one of our researchers. The fact that this is one that, like, I guess we we would have been closer to catching, you know what I mean? And, and actually experiencing right. and seeing and, and still... Oh, it's such a tease, right? Yeah. Where it just adds so much to the mystery because I was assuming a lot of these so far were just, we're deep into the Bermuda Triangle. Right. And we've gone missing. And this was just like, this is within our grasp, but still we can't catch it. This is along the chain of islands. I mean, it, it kind of is in the middle of nowhere because it is the ocean, but you have civilization in a lot of different directions. You have contact with the tower. You have it on radar. You see it visually. You're a mile out. Oh, man. It's, uh, it's, man. Yeah, it's wild. I feel like that's as close as we get to, like, you know, like it a, removes, like a, like a, like a decoy for the Bermuda Triangle. Exactly. Like, like throwing out bait for the Bermuda exactly. Triangle. That's what I'm saying, dude. It offers no help in trying to identify any trends or any possible culprits. In fact, it might continue to obscure what the culprit is because there's, th anyway. We'll dive into the theories. It's kind of interesting, but the next incident we're gonna cover before the theories is a private flight in the MU-2B aircraft. Now, this one is quite recent, uh, which we always, you know, with these perpetuating mysteries, we always wanna tap into a more recent one because that's what makes it even spookier to me is the fact that, yeah, sure, we know these historical incidents, right. but right in our backyard of time, this happened in May 15th, 2017. So not all that long ago. Oh my God, that's, that's not long ago at all, man. Yep, you can't, you, again, you can't use the reasoning of old tech and- Yeah, uh, I was you about know. to say, like, you know, I mean, I was assuming that there was going to be recent stuff, but then, you know, always as, as well, that makes us sit here and go, ah, well, you know, maybe, for example, there has been a lot of like murder cases that we've covered mm -hmm. and I went, man, if it was just like, modern times maybe we would have like been able to crack this open 
or it wouldn't have been a mystery because of, you know, modern tech. Sure. And here we are in 2017, still baffled and confused. Right. World's big, man. The world is big. Ocean is, is a wild place. Don't want to go missing around it. But like I mentioned, uh, May 15, 2017. On board of this aircraft were 40-year-old Skylight CEO Jennifer Blumen and her four- and three-year-old sons, along with her boyfriend, Nathan Ulrich, who was 52. Ulrich was an Ivy League-educated and former Coast Guard auxiliarist. For those who might not know, that is essentially the arm of the Coast Guard that is volunteer-oriented, but a protector no less. The pilot had 21 hours of multi-engine experience accumulated during sporadic flights over nine years. So not a whole lot of experience, um, but I wanted to mention that. The plane was supposed to land for refueling at the Space Coast Regional Airport in Titusville, Florida, around 2.45 p.m. Specifically 2.44 p.m., actually. So Titusville, Florida at 2.44 p.m., according to aviation records. About a half hour before its scheduled landing, the plane disappeared from the radar of Miami air traffic controllers. The MU-2B aircraft was at 24,000 feet and traveling 345 miles per hour when it vanished 37 miles east of the island Eleuthera in the Bahamas, said officials. The pilot's last known weather briefing occurred about eight hours before the airplane departed, so they were pretty up to speed on what the weather conditions were meant to be that day. And in this briefing, they were given sufficient weather information, including a hazardous weather advisory provided by an air traffic control broadcast message about 25 minutes before the accident. So all the way up to the incident, they're still getting information on the weather at large. At the time, the pilot via this weather briefing, could expect convective activity as well as the potential for icing along their flight path. Basically saying, yo, there's some conditions you might be want to be aware of here on your yeah. planned flight route. Now, there is no evidence to show that the pilot recognized this information or that they attempted to avoid these conditions, neither exiting the icing conditions or being aware of the convective conditions. And that is seen there's record of this from the airplane's radar track, but also from the pilot's communications with air traffic controllers. The next day, the Coast Guards found a debris field approximately 15 miles east of Eleuthera, Bahamas. No passengers were found, and it was later determined that the probable cause for this incident was the pilot's intentional flight into an area of known icing and convective thunderstorm activity, which resulted in a loss of control of the airplane. Now, the reason worth mentioning this particular incident is because while it is an incident that happened in the Bermuda Triangle area, it has a much stronger grounding in reality, right? The pilot had a little bit of experience, was informed about adverse weather conditions, and didn't seem to heed the warning and flew with that little experience into turbulent areas. Now, this just goes to show that this is something that can happen. Yeah. Oh, man. One of the things I like about, I guess, just like this episode so far is that we have like a good chunk of information in terms of like the moments, like there's so many different cases and a lot of these cases have like, we know this much up until this moment, which is like really like, oh man, it's so interesting because mm -hmm. it's like, what did they know? What did they know? What is the last thing that we heard from them? You know what I mean? There's like so much, regardless of like, yes, communication did eventually cut off and they went missing, but there's so much communication from like each little like story 
right like right up until right yeah what's interesting about this one is maybe it's a, ah, it's it's hard to say because there's a couple elements that are different from other stories right there is inclement weather and there is a pilot with not as much experience right but what's also beneficial in hindsight about this particular incident is that it is modern tech and so we can almost track all the ongoings of the situation a little bit better than previous ones and so this knowing more about this particular incident can potentially cast backwards some some doubt on any supernatural activity going on and help provide some grounding for incidents that have otherwise very little information where it seems like people just disappeared in the thin of air but yeah I might not have fully understood what you were uh, putting down. Oh, I was just saying, like, there's just so many different stories involved with this location. And with each story, we have so much information of what they knew up until the moment, what we knew up until the moment. Yeah, it's true. Right. Because a lot a lot of it's just like this person went here and they went missing or that. It's like this is like story after story. And we have all these logs of information in terms of what was communicated back and forth. It's so, so interesting. I love that. It's, I don't know. Like every, every time you're telling me about, about a new incident, I'm just like, okay, what, what did they say? What did we say back? Or what did we tell them? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. Unlike other mysteries, right? There is no obvious negligence involved or lack of know-how. There's, there's definitely a lot of effort going involved there's a lot of uh, hey the radar was there we were talking with them we could see them yeah and despite all of that and despite the search effort afterwards we still don't really know what happened they still disappeared there's still people going missing and and i think that's what provides the most unsettling feeling when it comes to these this consistent storyline or right this consistency happening in this area yeah it's just like being so close every time with every story and i'm just so intrigued to find out like what this you know another plane or another boat went missing but there's always that piece of information of like okay so here's what you know communication was like back and forth up until the final moments and it's just so i don't know man this is it's, it's gripping me <laughs> it's wild and and again this is one of the probably gateway mysteries for me yeah uh, I agree. getting interested in the unknown Hey everybody, it is Trevor Collins here, just parting the seas between the mystery to talk about some housekeeping notes. Now hold on a second, don't you skip, don't you dare, because I'm going to talk about some stuff. I'm going to talk about a podcast that our friends are working on, but before I do, I just want to say this podcast has continued to be a really, really awesome experience. It's It's been so unique, and I just want to thank you all for continuing to support the show, whether it be with merch or subscribing and listening every week or sharing it with a friend. It's been so cool to see a lot of the people that we credit in our podcast, a lot of the creators we talk about, uh, whether they're TikTok creators or whatever, the people that we reference their videos, like when they reach out and they say, thanks for crediting us and hey, your podcast. It's been so cool to be able to interact with the mystery world in such an in-depth way. And I can't thank you all enough for helping us do that. This is truly a, one of my passions. Uh, I love the unknown. I love mysteries. And for you guys to kind of help us kind of really be a sound voice in this arena means a whole awful lot. So thank you. Thank you for continuing to listen and for supporting the show. And for Elder's Vault, for example, we we referenced uh, some of their content in a uh, in a previous mystery and they reached out and they they gave us a shout out. And it's uh, it's really cool. It's just really, really cool. So I just wanted to, to kind of bring that to light. And thank you all. 
But I do want to talk about a friend's podcast here. It's called Annual Pass. It's with Jack Patillo and Jeff Ramsey. They're great friends and co-workers of Alfredo and myself. And if you love theme parks, you're going to love this podcast. Every week, they dissect a new ride. They go into the history of it. Jack used to work at theme parks and used to work at Universal. So he knows a lot of the insider kind of information, the behind the scenes of the rides, how they come together. He knows a whole awful lot. And they love rides and theme parks like I Love Mysteries. So if that strikes your fancy, give them a listen. You can find them wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, it's called Annual Pass. And yeah, tell them we sent you. Tell them that we have a better podcast. No, don't tell them that. But uh, but you should definitely listen. Uh, we have a little uh, a little low key rivalry between uh, between our podcasts now, and it's a whole lot of fun. Anyway, Annual Pass, check them out. They're great dudes, great podcast. But with that said, I want to talk about some of our sponsors this week. This episode of Red Web is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. A lot of us take care of our bodies, but the last year has really been tough on everyone, so we might want to take care of our minds as well. No matter what you might be facing in life, it's never a bad time to try out therapy. It can help you get an outside perspective, develop new emotional tools, and work through things that might be holding you back. Their website was very easy to use. I went to their uh, their website and was able to use their quiz to figure out how BetterHelp could help me. It takes only a few minutes, so if this isn't uh, a service that you're interested in, I can't recommend it enough. Go over to their website, use their quiz, see how they can help you from anything from family to individual to mental health services. They got your back when it comes to online therapy. BetterHelp is online therapy, so it offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. If you're not comfortable with being on camera, you don't have to be. Plus, BetterHelp is more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. I really like the fact that you don't have to be on camera. I'm, I'm kind of an introvert when it comes to that, and I love the fact that they have live chat. I'm just an old forum user, and so I like to tippity-tap on the keyboards when I'm talking to people. Red Web is sponsored by BetterHelp, and our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash redweb. That's betterhelp.com slash redweb for 10% off your first month. Get yourself some help, tell them we sent you, and save yourself some money while you do it. BetterHelp. This episode of Red Web is also sponsored by Upstart. Paying off high interest debt can feel like an endless uphill battle, but Upstart can help you get ahead. Upstart is a fast and easy way to pay off high interest debt with a personal loan, all online. So whether you're paying off credit cards or covering personal expenses, Upstart can help you get a fixed monthly payment. Upstart looks at more than just your credit score. They look at your education and your employment history so they can offer you smarter rates. And you can see your rate up front with a five-minute online rate check. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash redweb. That's upstart.com slash redweb. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, your income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Use our URL and let them know that we sent you. Go to upstart.com slash redweb. Now, with that said... Let's dive right back into the mystery. But those are some of the incidents that we wanted to cover. Again, we can always come back and maybe do an update episode where we cover a bunch more because 
we might be able to glean some new insights and some new gut instincts coming from other stories. But with those aside, I want to dive into some of the common theories, and there are a lot of them, that attempt to address the consistency here, the mysteries, the disappearances, the sightings, right? There's more than just people disappearing. There are also sightings like Christopher Columbus had of UFOs, both above and below the water, light activity, strange sightings that we didn't really cover, but... Right. Again, we could talk about it for episodes and days. (laughs) Episodes and days and weeks, and it's... It's very fascinating. But the first theory is is one of the more common theories to this day. Now, I think it is a, a newer theory, at least within my lifetime. And that is that this revolves around methane gas being released from the ocean floor. Oh. Yeah. So it has been proven that sizable amounts of methane gas exist in some spots, primarily craters on the ocean floor. These craters can measure up to half a mile wide and as deep as 150 feet. So these methane bubbles leak from deposits of oil and gas buried deep in the sea floor. Once these gases build up enough critical mass, they will then theoretically, right, burst through the surface of the ocean floor and cause large eruptions. Now this methane gas, per marine geologist Alan Judd, who comes from the University of Sunderland, when, it, when it's in the water, it lowers the density of that water and therefore it decreases the buoyancy and any ship caught above an explosive release of this methane would therefore sink. Anybody jumping off board with life jackets would also sink. It would act kind of like a lift shaft. But basically, that's that's how methane comes into play here. You might be like, well, how does it affect the ships? How does it affect the planes? Giant releases of methane, these giant bubbles, if they happen to strike a ship going by, it would sink the ship very quickly without any precursor you would have no knowledge that this would be coming Ooh, like okay so i got so many thoughts running through my head right now hit me with them because I mean, that makes sense right we've already proven that mm-hmm. that this is a thing that happens and so that adds up yeah methane gas hits suddenly out of nowhere i feel like things happen here often enough that we'd be able to like i don't know maybe track it or be able to tell if it's like hey this is a pocket of the ocean that's very heavy with um with this type of like natural thing that happens underwater right got a lot of it got a lot of activity with that methane gas here like i'm, I'm being tugged back and forth because it's like yeah i mean that that would make sense that oh man so that i mean I, like did you say how it affects planes that is an amazing question because that is the next kind of logical step you say okay cool it can make a boat and its passengers disappear without a trace and basically pull it all into the water. And you gotta think about it, just some gut check physics, right? If if there are a bunch of bubbles below a ship, you're essentially collapsing into a bunch of air pockets as they're floating up. And regardless, don't take it from me, take it from the marine geologist we just quoted, but it can wipe your boat out very quickly. The planes are otherwise in the air though. And now there's a couple of theories that attempt to explain how the planes are also affected, right? Once this methane escapes the ocean and goes up into the air, it probably doesn't dissipate very quickly, especially for planes that are flying a little lower altitude than commercial aircraft that we're familiar with. But once it's in the atmosphere, it starts to make the air much more turbulent, which can in fact cause planes to crash, you can lose control. But I've also read that if the methane doesn't dissipate enough and the concentration is still 5 to 15%, when it reaches an aircraft that has a combustion engine, it can ignite 
and cause the engine to explode, which again, we didn't necessarily cover in specifically, but there are incidents or claims of planes exploding or going down due to explosions in the area. And so perhaps this idea that methane activity in the area is what's causing all this is in fact the solution. Another thing that I was thinking about as well um, with methane, and I didn't put pen to paper for any math, this is just me thinking out loud, but you know, a lot of planes use pressure to figure out a lot of their measurements, their airspeed, their altitude, and a lot of other controls in readings, especially in the mid 1900s. Now, if methane were to hit those planes and adjust the pressure coming in from the pitot tube on the outside of the plane, it could throw off everything. It could throw off their instruments. I don't know how it would affect the compass per se, because that is a common thing for the compass to go haywire, but it could affect the apparent airspeed. It could affect the apparent altitude and make it look like you're diving. It could affect a lot of other instruments and a lot of other readings and really make an experienced pilot go confused. And it doesn't take a whole lot when flying day or night to lose the horizon and lose control of the plane and for that to become a vicious cycle and down you go. This theory makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. And this was actually explored in a Mythbusters episode um, on the Discovery oh. Channel many, many years ago. And they showed with models that bubbles rising up to the surface can very quickly take a boat down. And at scale, at normal scale, this kind of event can happen within minutes. Next thing you know, the boat and its passengers are gone without a trace, without so a warning. fast, yeah. Yeah. Now, a couple wrinkles that I did want to address in this particular theory, and the reason why it is still a theory, is that it doesn't address some of the reports of disappearances of people from boats, right? Boats in this area, there are stories of people disappearing with the boat remaining. You might want to say, well, then maybe they went overboard and yeah. it's going to be very hard to find somebody overboard. That's my first thought. Mm -hmm. But other scientists come through and say, it's not clear that this type of gas is being released and that it's occurring. You you had mentioned it, right? If we knew in this area that methane gases were being released very often that, you know, we could get down to the surface, the ocean floor and study that behavior and know about that. And looking at geographic records, again, I'm not an expert, but another wrinkle comes from some of the experts who study this type of activity in the ocean floor. And, and they say, you know, it isn't necessarily clear if these types of gases are being released and these releases are occurring. The most recent major events of this nature are traced back to 15,000 years ago. So vastly predating the stories that we have around this area and it hasn't necessarily been shown to be a very common thing and maybe it will be maybe we just don't know yet but i would expect scientists of this field to be down there studying methane gas releases if this is something that's actually happening this is geographical activity you, right. you would think that you would measure it uh, maybe, or could measure oh it oh god i don't even know how you approach that maybe throughout a, a, a ton of just like buoys with like markers and totally different realm for me <laughs> that's a whole new realm of imagination and science you know like some seismic studies and yeah trying to get down there and scan the ocean floor like try to see you know if there are pockets how else do they search for oil at the ocean floor right and uh do something similar there i don't know so there's some wrinkles in the theory but honestly it makes a lot of sense it does address some of the otherwise like how did a 550 foot ship disappear like that like a in the blink of an eye that's a solid theory for me that's really good and i think it is one of the more lead 
competing theories, but we have a couple more that are kind of interesting here. So another theory is that this is the activity or the result of water spouts in the area. According to NASA, for those who don't know what a water spout is, it's a spinning column of rising moist air that typically form over warm water. It is essentially a tornado at the ocean or a water tornado. Now, during this type of weather phenomenon, water from the ocean is pulled hundreds or even thousands of feet into the air, and it can be as dangerous as a tornado and can feature wind speeds over 125 miles an hour or over 200 kilometers an hour. They have been spotted in the Bermuda Triangle before, and some form away from thunderstorms and can even pop up during relatively fair weather, which is relevant to the stories that we kind of covered before. Yep. And what's interesting, and I didn't know, they can be relatively transparent. Jesus. Right? <laughs> but they can be relatively transparent. And on top of that, the only real way in that sort of circumstance to identify it is to see the unusual pattern that they create on the water. And if you're flying a plane or if you're down on the surface of the water, you might not notice, you might not see this kind of thing coming for you. And we'll post an image of what these things look like on our Twitter page as well. Typically you see them, typically they're pretty obvious, but it is worth noting that they can be relatively transparent and hard to see. And uh, the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Florida is arguably one of the most active areas in the world for water spouts with several hundreds, in fact, forming every year. Well, that's a decent amount. It's a decent amount. It's in the neighborhood. It is a viable contender for some of the activity going on here. But I would say, what about that St. Thomas flight that disappeared a mile off the coast? People ran out there, no water spout, no activity, but also no evidence. That kind of differs from the Flight 19 incident where the Flight 19 crew and, and uh, airplanes disappear rescue crews go out there and then maybe there is a water spout uh, and maybe one of those rescue planes found that or whatever anomaly took out flight 19. Yeah. Strange but possible. I mean this for me adds into it's in the same bucket for me as the first area where it's just like you know nature. <laughs> nature. This seems to you know it's just an area of the ocean where you know these more frequent natural kind of like disasters happen. Oh yeah. Definitely. And I, I mean, that's that's going to be the trend with these theories. Like, they're all natural in some way. That's scary. The water tornadoes that are sometimes transparent. Like, I, I don't knew like the water that. tornadoes were a thing, but like, what? Yeah. Hold on now. I did not need to learn about that. I did not need to know that that is possible. <laughs> are they big enough to mess up a cruise or something? Jeez. And not be right. going on a cruise or something. Wow. That would be, Yeah, that would be wild. But this next theory is also very interesting. And it revolves around rogue waves. Now, the Bermuda Triangle lies along the edge of the Gulf Stream and where it moves. The Gulf Stream being a strong ocean current that brings warm water from the Gulf of Mexico out around Florida and into the Atlantic Ocean. This kind of current can lead to high waves, which could easily capsize a boat. And these waves, these rogue waves, can hit with absolutely no warning at all and can be hundreds of feet high. Now you think about a, uh, a tsunami. Those are enormous waves, but they're thrust up there. It's energy in the ocean, a wave kicking through the ocean that gets thrust upwards because the volume of water uh, has to go somewhere once it hits the coast because uh, the water gets more shallow. Now, rogue waves can be that high in the middle of the ocean, if that gives you any idea of how crazy energetic this kind of phenomenon could be. Yeah, just out of nowhere, big old wave, just bam. Mm -hmm. And if they're tall enough, you know, obviously they can capsize a boat 
boom, like that. The planes, though. What about the planes, though? What about the planes? I mean, you think about if a lot of activity happened in the mid-1900s. I keep leaning on this, but a lot of these planes did fly relatively low. They were more low altitude. Of course, they could fly higher uh, and often did. But, you know, depending on wh what the situation is, if they're flying low enough, a rogue wave could possibly hit them. Again, this theory doesn't necessarily fit in nicely with all of our incidents covered, nor will it fit in many of the incidents, but it is viable. My my detailed question about this theory, and I guess I could kind of apply to the tornado one as well, mm -hmm. or just like all the natural disasters. Talk about how a lot of planes, you know, flew low, etc. Do we know of like the more recent plane incidents? I mean, I'm sure we had their kind of like elevation. Yeah. Do we know if they're flying high any like and even flying high or I mean, I'm sure there isn't like a trend with they all fly low, right? I'm sure most of them in like we, we had that one plane that's flying low because it's a rescue plane and I'm not exactly sure of the altitude of flight 19. Maybe Christian can look that up as we as we speak. But the most recent incident that we discussed that aircraft was flying at 24,000 feet. So it's way up there. It ain't getting hit by a rogue wave. But that incident in particular, I think there was some negligence on the pilot's part. You know, they were informed of inclement weather. And so that one feels a little bit less mysterious, right? Yeah. It's basically an incident that, yes, happened in that area, but goes to show that there could be human error in play or weather, just normal weather in play that can take out these aircraft. So it doesn't have to be something as crazy as methane or, or rogue waves, but it, it totally also could be. Seems the altitude for Flight 19 was about 4,000 feet. That's a crazy wave! Damn! <laughs> it's a crazy wave if those guys took got taken out. Yeah, I'm pretty convinced that those poor fellas got lost due to instrumentation errors and... I mean, obviously, you can listen to their comms, and it was um, just very unfortunate. And in getting lost, I fear they flew almost randomly off course. They saw some islands. They tried to navigate according to that. Off they went, and I'm sure they met an unfortunate end, whether they lost fuel or what have you, out in the middle of the ocean thinking they were supposed to be overland. But, you know, these, these theories can't solve and won't solve all of the incidents. I think that, you know, some amalgamation of these theories combined with natural incidents, such as just normal weather, right, icing uh, and other things, or human error, I think that's what is really happening here. Yeah, um, in my opinion, but I agree. But on the rogue waves, you know, it does sound outlandish, but oceanologists today have kind of started to say, OK, no, now we believe the conditions in this area are pretty, pretty right and ripe for a massive rogue wave. So it, it's totally possible. Some of these incidents were caused by rogue waves. And using simulations, they were able to demonstrate how this could put ships at risk. Uh, Huffington Post actually reported that rogue waves of this type could reach around 100 feet tall, which again is not 4,000 foot wave to hit those right. planes, but... to get up there. A 100 foot wave in the middle of the ocean, if that doesn't sound incredible... Again, terrifying. Yeah, I mean, if it doesn't sound big, let me give you some context. The largest wave ever recorded was a 100-foot tsunami triggered by an earthquake and a landslide in Alaska's Latuya Bay in 1958. So, largest wave ever recorded, tsunami, 100-foot. This is a 100-foot wave in the middle of the ocean, and they're saying it's possible. I would be terrified, but right before being terrified, I'd be so amazed. I'd be like, wow. <laughs> Whoa, look at that. I should hide now. 
Right. Anyone got a GoPro that can float? I'll film this and hopefully someone stumbles into it. Yeah. I don't know necessarily if I'm going to subscribe to any of these particular theories. I think the methane gas one is the most intriguing, but um, the last major theory that I wanted to discuss is that of the Earth's magnetic field. Now, it's a much looser theory. It doesn't necessarily have specific grounding uh, such as the other ones, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't address it because this is one of the kind of ideas behind everyone's compasses going crazy. This oh. is one of the quintessential um, symptoms of being in the Bermuda Triangle. So most compasses, including those on a boat, point towards Earth's north magnetic pole. We kind of talked about this earlier. And that tends to be different than Earth's uh, north geographic pole. And in the Bermuda Triangle, to this day, it's slightly off, but not a whole lot. But when flying an aircraft from point A to B, we use directions based on a map, based on geography. But when they're flying, they're using a compass, which is, like I mentioned, just slightly off of the geography. It's based on the magnetic field, right? Right. So in addition to that kind of rounding error in reading a map and traversing the area, it seems that the Bermuda Triangle specifically compounds this problem between the compass and geographic north and magnetic north. Because apparently, and per this theory, the Bermuda Triangle appears to be one of two places on Earth where compasses get very confused because, again, I don't really know the science behind it, but it would be a theory that I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it. A lot of people purport that this area has a just a magnetic anomaly in that the magnetic right. field just doesn't lay right and therefore it messes with the compasses, causing confusion, causing people to get lost at sea, and causing people to either get veer off course and run out of fuel and crash, or otherwise get lost. This theory to me is a bit hairy. It doesn't rely on enough proper science for me to really fully understand it or to convey it. But again, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it because it's commonly mentioned. I mean, because it seems like compasses play like a, a big role, right? Yeah. And uh, a lot of confusion around like the navigational system and everything like that. That being said, oh man, maybe I'm just simplifying it way too much, but I feel like that would be a constant. Right. If that was an issue, that'd be a constant and you can just kind of get into the outer rim of the Bermuda Triangle and experience and be able to log and see that constant. Yeah. But again, I could be overly simplifying the whole thing. No, I don't think you are. Cause like, unless I'm missing something, it seems like anytime this is brought up, people just go, oh, the compasses are going weird. Well, that's because it's an anomalous area. And so yeah. that just happens. But again, I mean, if it does happen, maybe it's something like the Aurora Borealis where it's not constant. There are times where it's more active and less active. And so maybe it's sporadic enough, but I don't know. It, it feels like it's leaning on pseudoscience a little bit, or at least is missing the substantial evidence necessary to stand as a strong theory, in my opinion. Yeah, it falls, it falls short for me. I think I, I would need more. Yeah, but with that theory under our belts, let's talk about some of the smaller theories that also I'd be remiss if I didn't mention. So these are commonly discussed because of the strange sightings in addition to the disappearances, in addition to fireballs and lightning uh, being shown in the area. And these theories revolve around UFOs and aliens, but also extend to wormholes and other anomalous space-time situations happening, right? I knew aliens was gonna be one of them. I knew oh, it. Of course, of course. 
Uh, but wormholes kind of pulling ships out of this time and into another, or just into another space. But uh, these theories also extend into the lost city of Atlantis in various ways. What ways those are, I'm not sure, because Atlantis, as far as uh, that story is concerned, is uh, is not located in this area. Maybe that's an episode we should dive into because there are some more, uh, more recent theories about uh, the city of Atlantis that I find to be very compelling. Oh, seriously? Yeah, uh, that kind of are based in ancient Greek storytelling. I just like this is just it was just me just thinking like, oh man, Atlantis, but it. I would think that there's not much to it, but apparently there might be. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Atlantis itself, interesting topic, but I don't know how it necessarily plays into this as, you know, any more than aliens would. But, yeah, right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's those are common theories for sure. And I don't mean to be dismissive of them, but, but that's all we got on that. Atlantis just doesn't want us on their lawn type right. situation. Like, hey, get out of our how skies. Does, how does that play into it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. Maybe they're like, oh, that's a nice boat. You guys want a boat? Pull it down. Yeah, sure. We'll take another one. Yeah, but the last theory, the last, last theory is that this mystery is no mystery at all. And it's interesting. Australian scientist Carl Krushenilski claimed that the high number of disappearances cannot be explained by aliens or Atlantis or even the more plausible theories involving rogue waves that we mentioned before. Instead, he suggests that this mystery is nothing more than a perfect mix of human error, bad weather, and high concentration of ships in this area. To quote him, the number that go missing in the Bermuda Triangle is the same as anywhere in the world on a percentage basis, end quote. And that's true. There are a lot of disappearances across the world. In fact, there are a lot of triangles in the world that have been identified as hot spots for disappearances. But if you look at it as a percentage basis, this is a very highly trafficked piece of the world historically and today. And, you know, if there is a 1% chance that you go missing on a boat or a plane anywhere in the world, well, I mean, it's going to look like there are hot spots where a lot of right. traffic converges. And and so this is a really good point by this guy. Um, that could be it. We might be looking a little too deep at otherwise unfortunate circumstances. Ooh, I like that. I mean, I like that, though. Where it's just like, yeah. hey, it's a high traffic zone. Like, what do you, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, what do you think is going to happen? Same thing with, like, certain streets and, you know, in, in cities. There are, you know, streets that have a lot of, like, a lot of traffic that goes through them. So there's a lot of accidents, right? So it's, right. Like, it's not an anomaly. It's just there's so many cars bound to add up. The fact, though, that he says the percentages mimic other locations. Well, that was me. Let me quote him for sure. The number that go missing in the Bermuda Triangle specifically is the same as anywhere else when you consider it on a percentage basis. And then I was talking about there being other hotspots. There are other triangles around the world that people kind of put these this lore to. Oh, I read that as like, you know, just a number of ships that go missing in different places. Like if you actually just, you know, calculate the percentage, mm -hmm. right? Versus the yeah. volume, they, yep. they parallel. Right, for sure. And like, you know, you can find these statistics, but going to your analogy, I really like that because if you look at cars, statistically, there is a car crash for every X number of car rides, right? And so you would then look at, you could look at the continental US and say, okay, where are there more accidents? 
And then you could look at it. Let's just pick LA. Sorry, LA. But you pick LA and you might start looking like, oh, it's because there's higher population density, longer hours of rush hour, more traffic. Yep. Uh, you might then say something even more specific, like there are no roundabouts or there's a lacking stop sign here. You, so you can dive into the nitty gritty to attempt to answer it. But then if you really pull out on a macro level and you say, well, if you just look at the odds, one in blank number of cars are going to crash and there just happens to be more cars in LA. And so, yeah, these theories might address some of the reasons as to why things are going down in this area. But on the whole, they aren't the solution. On the whole, it might just be that it's a highly trafficked area. And, you know, stories started to get built up because, you know, we started to identify more incidents here than elsewhere. And, and the name kind of precedes itself now, you know? I love that. I love that. Yeah, there's something about that that, I, that is comforting. I, I agree. Uh, not that I'm a fan of people going missing or whatever, no, no, but no, I, no, no. but there's comfort in knowing that it's normal, that nothing more nefarious is happening, that if you're going through the area, you have just as much of risk as going any other area. So consider that on your flight back home for the holidays. <laughs> the triangle could be anywhere. Fascinating area, though. Fascinating area. That's all we had to discuss as far as theories are concerned. Damn. Will continue to be a mystery, I think, you know, but it's something that scientists are still studying to this day. And it's it, to me, it's deeply fascinating to learn about these stories and kind of noodle on what what's going down in the area. So good. Yeah. Oh, this is oh, this is such a fun episode. Yeah, I like these uh, these more kind of open-ended, we talk more about a uh, a general topic rather than a specific instance. I like these more kind of conversational ones. They, a lot of leg room kick around. There really is. And <laughs> there was like a lot to dive into. And this is something, you know, that I've known about because of, you know, like I said, Hollywood and media and all that kind of stuff. But to really like sit down, I get so excited when it's something that like, oh, I've heard about that. But like, I want to sit down and actually know about it. Yeah. Well, how do these incidents kind of looking back, how do how does your preconceived notion from the Hollywood version of Bermuda Triangle now compare to your slightly more informed optics on this area? Um, less like crazy sci-fi and more just scientific, you know, nature. Yeah. It's just the ocean doing its thing. Nature's scary. <laughs> Nature be scary. <laughs> Well, that's this week's mystery. Fredo, thank you for joining me as always. Love talking about the Bermuda Triangle. Good time. In fact, I might put it on the docket. Maybe someday, a few weeks from now, maybe we will dive into a couple more of these stories for fun. But with that said, let's close out this mystery. I'll see you here next Monday for another one. Take yes, care. Sir. Later. Later.